Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson, and tonight our guests will be Dr. Dr. Bob Miner, who's Professor Emeritus from the University of Kansas. He's Professor Emeritus of Religious Studies. He's written a book called When Religion is an Addiction. And our second guest will be Mark Tuchel, who has written a book called Living Sober Sucks, But Living Drunk Sucks More. And uh, with a, uh, before we start the show, I'm going to do a little plug for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are the Hams Harm Reduction Network. We're a free-of-charge, lay-led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. Our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. For more information, go to hamsnetwork.org slash book. Our first guest is Dr. Robert Miner. Uh, his book is When Religion is an Addiction. We're going to bring him on right now. Bob, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing well, thank you. Thank you for inviting me on. Thank you for coming. Um, Bob, do you think that all religions are addictions, or is it just some religion, or what's your idea about this? Well, I don't think the addictive part is in the religion itself. I think the addictive part is in the person and how they, for one reason or another, relate to whatever religion they choose. So I think that religion, like uh, many other what are called process addictions, can be an addiction for people. Um, and the parallel is, of course, um, whether or not a person is uh, has a glass of wine at night uh, to finish their day or whether or not a person uh, uses wine addictively. So I don't, but I think in this case, I don't think there's anything in any religion that is inherently addictive. I think that people will go to religion for other reasons um, to treat it like an addiction, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So do you think we could say that uh, religion can be like an addiction when it causes harms? I think it does, because in, in the sense of harm, it starts out with personal harm, you know, just like any addiction does. It keeps pe- people from actually dealing with their life issues. So instead of dealing with uh, 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 what is going on in the world and making the changes, you uh, you get sort of you spend your time in the activities and beliefs of the religious system that you've accepted um, and uh, hope that in the future something will change maybe, but instead of dealing with your own issues here and now. So you don't deal with your own uh, feelings. Uh, instead, you use religion to get different feelings. Uh, you don't confront the issues of your own life. You don't make the changes in your own life that need to be made. It's, it's very much like any other addiction. You know, like someone coming home from <clears throat> from work and uh, instead of dealing with the issues at work, uh, just begins to have as many drinks as they can until they don't feel it at all. And I think religion for many people, and I would guess about in America about 20% of the people could be called religiously addicted. Um, the same mm-hmm. amount that are often called the... Uh, 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 the uh, um, authoritative personalities when that type of stuff is studied. So I'm, I'm guessing that if there's a large group of people who are religiously addicted, and those would be the people who, no matter what you do, uh, are going to stick with it because this is their way of not feeling what they need to feel in order to do some healing. Mm-hmm. When we talk about addictions causing harm, we can talk about causing harm to ourselves, or the addiction can cause harm to other people. Uh, what are some of the harms you might see religion causing to other people in society? Well, I think that what happens, of course, with the ultimate thing is, of course, when people use religion, are so caught up in their religion that they use it to physically harm people. And that could be uh, as extensive as the Inquisition, as extensive as religious wars, as extensive as the Crusades, and so on where you're doing this stuff to people and you have been told that it's okay to do them to people and your religion has really has really kept you from being able to feel the harm you're doing to these other people. Uh, one example, just real, I think is quickly here, is when you have, for example, in a state legislature and you have a, a person who opens the legislature with a prayer and says, uh, 
uh, and it's in Jesus' name, and it's very much uh, Jesus-centered. And people will say to that person, well, of course, there are people you're offending. Well, the, the, the person who's, who's sort of treating religion addictively is, doesn't care who they're offending. They believe that they should be offending those people. And so just like the person who is caught up in an addiction so strongly that they're hurting their family um, but don't even realize it, uh, they're just so, they're the right, they're in the right, and the family's the problem. My boss is the problem. My wife is the problem. If you are married to this woman, you drink too, that kind of thing. They don't really see what, what they're, the harm they're doing to others. And so religion can do that at all sorts of levels. Okay, are there uh, any religious groups or movements uh, in the United States today that you see tend to be more addictive than others? I think the, what we would call extreme right-wing religion, which is kind of ultra-conservative, um, I think that those uh, uh, religious movements, like very, very extreme Christian religions, conservative ones, um, they have their user activities, they have their sort of cut and dried um, uh, answers to things, which are answers, as, as John Bradshaw says, to religious answers, which aren't really answers. They're meant to stop discussion, like saying, uh, well, of course the Bible says, or uh, you should just be praying about that, or uh, who's more important, you or God. Those aren't really discussions. Those are meant to stop. That's the language that means to stop the, means to stop the discussion. And so the, the, I think there's a very extreme right-wing religion, which is tends to be identified with those religions that, peop that say people are basically bad, and uh, that can exist in any denomination that can exist in, uh, in, uh, as well. And I think they're the ones that are most prone to this because built into their system is the teaching that you as an individual are inherently deep down bad, and there's nothing, nothing, nothing you and yourself can do to make it better and the only way you can be better is if somebody else likes you. In this case, that somebody else is a, is a, is a father in heaven. And the theology, that theology that says you are so bad that you deserve from that heavenly father, that model of love, eternal child abuse. That that's what you deserve on your own. When you get into that kind of teaching, that deep kind of teaching, that's that, and that sticks in someone. There's a real deep, you know, this real sense of, and that's the ultimate bad self-concept. <laughs> unlike, unlike uh, you know, that old joke about, uh, uh, unlike uh, uh, what they usually talk about, the bad self-concepts, this is sort of like the joke that says, well, you're not really paranoid. Everybody is out to get you. This isn't really a bad self-concept. This is a reality that you are this absolutely non-deserving person and just should be so glad that somebody in the universe loves you. That belief system, which I believe goes back to how we raise our children, otherwise I think that system would look so uh, awful that people wouldn't accept it. Um, that belief system and religions that have that belief system, uh, why wouldn't you go to flee as quickly as you could to some addiction if you really believe that about yourself? And in this case, religion provides the, the belief, and then it provides the supposed solution. Okay. What about uh, militant Islam and uh, fundamentalist Islam? Was, do you also consider that a religious addiction? I think, I think it can be and probably is. I haven't, I've studied Islam, and I've studied the military, but I haven't kind of worked out the sort of parallels but again, mm -hmm. these are people. When you, when you look at when you look at the people, look, you st I start with the lives. And when you look at the people who are involved in militant Islam, they come very much out of this poisonous pedagogy, this child rearing in which children are beaten, in which children are treated awful, and so on. And so, so again, the 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 belief that you cannot be good enough, and that the only way you can be good enough is to is to die for your system, is to destroy yourself for this for your belief. I think that is this I think that's where the addiction comes from. And so it leads people to this 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 militancy in the same way that we we see people that led to a militant right wing uh, uh, Christian militancy. And again, it doesn't um, you believe you're doing it for the good and you believe you're doing it 
that doing it is necessary, whatever the, the militant um, activities are, that doing this is necessary and gives you this feeling, this high of righteousness. And, and that's the key. And you know, I, I quote in the book John Bradshaw's statement, which is just a striking statement from a man who was both a brother in a monastic order and also identified himself as a cocaine addict, uh, that says the high of righteousness that he felt when he was in that order, when he felt good and we could feel righteous about himself, we would say self-righteous, uh, is the same as the high of cocaine. That's a, that's a powerful statement uh, that uh, most religious people would not want to agree with. But I think it's that, how can I feel so righteous, so good, so good about myself, so much that I'm on the side of good against all this evil and so on that is both within me and without, and how do I do that? Well, no in Islam can fulfill that same thing. So yeah, I would, I, I would include that as another one. I would include it in militant Hindu, militant Buddhist. I, I would say you can find these in, 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 in all of the uh, traditions. Tell me a little bit more about the high of righteousness and how this is addictive. Well, again, it starts with what do I do about myself? How can I feel good about myself when I'm being told by my religious tradition that I am worthless and as a worm, just as I am without one single plea, uh, um, such a worm as I, you know, that type of thing. Uh, and so how can I feel again that I'm okay that I'm good when I have that sort of belief about myself and that feeling that high that takes place and it used to take place in churches and, and in religious institutions when they all got together and they sort of celebrated whatever it was you know they sang the hymns they they, they uh, um, celebrated their unity in the in this uh, addictive process, and uh, and I, I call it at one place. I, I know this is pretty negative. It, it didn't function like a support group. It functioned more like an opium den. We all sat around and we we, we smoked the dope together, and that if the desire to have that feeling that I'm really okay, that I'm really to get away from these feelings about me being a negative, dirty worm who deserves on my own health. That, that emotional high, and we know that uh, uh, that can actually affect the same dopamine, the same levels of the brain that are affected by uh, uh, substance addiction. So it's, it's, it's how can I recover that high when I feel so bad about myself, and what can I do about it? How can I, how can I get to it? Well, you pray more. You sing more hymns, you, you get together with the people who you agree with you, you do that, and then I'm saying in the book that that eventually didn't work, that eventually what's happened now is the user activities that make them feel righteous and right and good are the ones where they win elections now, and so there's this compulsion to, to continue to be doing uh, political activities now as the user activities, because that makes me feel, you know, if I win, uh if we win on, on whatever issue it is, a gay issue or abortion issue or something, if we win the election, then that's kind of a proof that I'm righteous because the country is behind me. And there's really a sort of sad lack of faith in all that because you shouldn't have to do that to believe you're right or to believe that God's going to win or something. There's a real sort of unbelief in 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 this religious tradition that does that. It is based on extreme, this extreme insecurity, uh, even insecurity that even God can't help me, I think. Mm -hmm. Are there some positive and non-addictive ways to use religion? Could you give me some examples? I, I think the I think when you, when you, when, when religions are used to help you understand yourself, when they're used, and I'm not saying that you need religion to do this, I'm not, not arguing that you need it. But I think that if you look at someone like Martin Luther King Jr., let's say, what you find is someone who the more he delved into his very liberal theology and so on, he began to understand himself and other people. And it actually drove him to, to a nonviolent position. And 
he began to see that you know I need to that I need to change the world about me. And he the, the more he did, the more he realized it wasn't just about race. It was about class. It was about war. It was about all sorts of things. And I think that what it did for him is helped him understand his own self and didn't cause him to cover up his issues. And and so and he had issues like we all do. But he but they became but they came it became a means of facing the issue. Let me give an example. I know I'm talking too long, but uh, uh, if I were to go to a pastor with a problem, and this is a kind of a deep down problem, I don't know what it is, you just name it, and the pastor tells me, well, you have to pray more, and you need to read your Bible more, and you should come to church more, and you should come to evening service, and morning service, and Wednesday service, and all this more. That would be an addictive answer. That would be, mm-hmm. you need the drug more. Mm-hmm. But if I, but if, if I, as a pastor listened to that person, heard that person, didn't give them those bad answers, let them know that how they were feeling is how many people feel, that feelings are meant to be felt, that they help us understand. Feelings help us understand the present, but they also help us understand the past. You know, when we overreact to something, it means we're being triggered, something in our past that we haven't dealt with. And I use that process to sort of delve into, well, gee, why is it? That when someone says this, I take it so I, I, I leap into anger and so on. What is it that the hurts, unhealed, what is the unhealed hurt and pain down in there? If it helps me understand that, you see, then it's a, it's a healing model of, of religion, not a uh, cover-up model. Well, you know, you just need to pray more. You should smile. You should be happy, happy, happy all the day, model. Does that make sense? So, yes. again, mm-hmm. I'm talking personally here. <clears throat> and, and I believe that that healing model uh, uh, of religion will actually cause us to say, well, we, we have to not only heal ourselves, but a real healing model that doesn't get addicted will say, we need to change in the world what is causing us all to be hurt. And that's an outward, I talk about an inward and an outward journey in my writings. And, and so the inward journey is finding out where I've been hurt, dealing with the hurts, recognizing it, learning from that, not, not getting stuck there in anger or something. And then the next thing is, okay, what in that world about us is is hurting us, and how should I be a part of stopping what's hurting me? So, for example, if I burn my uh, hand on the stove, I should do two things. One is I should heal. I should put salve on the hand. But the second thing I probably should do is turn off the stove. So you need to have both those elements for the healing model. I, I see Martin Luther King as an example of that. I don't want to portray him as a perfect person, but I see him as an example who tried very much to use religion. And, of course, his theology evolved as a result of that. Well, he started out much more conservative, he got much, much, much more liberal, even to the place that he could be called Unitarian at the end of his life. Mm-hmm. I noticed in your book you talked about liberals being enablers of the religious right. Can you tell me how that works? Well, one of the things we're told to do is we're taught, liberal people like myself are taught to be enablers. We're taught to be nice. We're taught not to offend people. We're taught not to uh, not to say something, sort of stand up for ourselves because it might offend someone. And so there's a sort of price of being nice. There's a sort of, I, I go around and I don't let people know that there's an alternative to being addicted. When I run into people who are going to who take these kind of stands, that they're just they're just stuck. And so I, what happens is I then sort of pull into myself, and will not say, well, you know, I disagree with that. You know, I don't believe that about you. Um, uh, and so as liberals, we've been taught to sort of uh, compromise, step back, and not take a stand. It indicates for people there is another way. And so we're sort of become like the Al-Anon people. Um, well. What's that famous that line that says you didn't cause it, uh, you can't cure it, you can't change it? And so I sort of feel as then as a liberal that well, if I just understood the person better, the addicted religious person better, then they would be better. If I was just nicer to that person, then they would be better. And I and we start talking like the abused spouse talks about her husband, uh, her abuser. Uh, I I uh, it's it is her husband. Um, I, uh, I I just loved him more if I just didn't trigger him more and stuff like that. We start talking that way, and so instead we sort of walk on pins and needles 
in the same way that a family uh, of an alcoholic might enable the alcoholic by covering up for him, by making excuses for him, by calling into work and say, well, he's sick today, and this type of thing, and never allowing the, in this case, I'm talking about the right wing, never allowing the, the user to know, hey, you know, I totally disagree with what you're saying. I don't have to hate you about it. I don't have to get angry with you about it. But I, you, do you know that I do totally disagree and do not think what you're saying is true and 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 that I'm, I'm, I'm not necessarily going to sit there and argue with you about it, but I'm going to say, look, at, you're looking at someone who disagrees, and then we model our healthy life <clears throat> as best we can. Um, so, but, but, but liberals have been taught to not continue to compromise with the religiously addicted as if their movement, as if their viewpoint is worth compromising with. And when we do that, when we try to sort of move into that compromise position, we're actually affirming the addiction. We're actually affirming the problem by the move we make. Uh, and again, I'm not talking about being mean. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I'm talking about, I'm, uh, you know, this is, this is like Al-Anon stuff, I guess. I'm talking about um, saying, you know, you and I just totally disagree on this. Um, I get letters from people when I write something, uh, a lot of things I do on LGBT issues and so on, and I'll get letters from people that have long quotations of all these Bible passages as if as if I never knew this stuff. You know, gee, I got my master's degree at Trinity Divinity School in Deerfield, <laughs> in biblical study. <laughs> I've read that stuff a lot of times, you can imagine. So, But I get all these long emails. Now, I could get into an argument with them, but that's like arguing with uh, someone who is an alcoholic, uh, whether rum or tequila is better for you. That gets them arguing on something other than what the real issue is, which is why do you use religion this way? Why do you pick on those passages and not others? And so what my stand, standard response is to email back saying, uh, I want you to know I've received your email. Please understand that I disagree with you at every point. Good luck on your journey. This, my point I want to make is I, I don't want to get into an argument with them. That's a, that's a wasted energy and, and also fuels the addiction. Ah, now they're now they can righteousness can keep coming back. But I want them to know very clearly. Hey, you've run into someone who's not going to move, who, is, who does not agree with you. And I do really wish them good luck on their journey. So it's 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 a very different thing, and it means you have to sometimes jump up and down in the same place. No, you and I disagree about that. But what about this? No, we disagree about that. But what about... I know a lot of people believe that, but we disagree about that. And so you end up jumping up and down sometimes in the same place. But the important thing is they need to see that you're holding yourself responsible for what you believe, and you're not going to blame God for it. And I have this chapter in the book called It's All God's Fault. Because there's ultimately in all this, there's ultimately some sort of blaming God for this. I wouldn't be this way, but the Bible says so, so therefore I have to believe this. And that's not, that's totally irresponsible attitude. No, you understand the Bible this way, and there are a lot of other people who understand it differently. Take responsibility for it. So we have to take responsibility for it. Okay, um, the last chapter in your book, I think, is called Towards an Intervention, and you talk about ways to deal with uh, people who are religiously addicted. And what are some of those ways we can deal with people who are religiously addicted? Well, because the first thing we have to do is, of course, we have to, um, again, I always, it always starts with us. <laughs> we, always, we also have to examine what our relationship is to religion. So if, if, if these people and the, what they're going to say to us are going to trigger our issues about religion, then we need to some kind of reconcile what our issues are with religion, either if we are or aren't and so on. Because everybody in this culture has been hurt by religion in some way. You cannot turn on the TV without this negative stuff coming at us. So the first thing, if we're going to deal with it, is we've got to look inward and say, well, what's my relationship to religion? We've got to notice what triggers us. So if someone comes to me and says, well, if you believe that, you're going to hell, and that gets me angry, well, then I'm caught up in something. Someone comes up to me and says, hey, you're going to hell if you believe that. And I can say, well, that's an interesting belief. I don't believe in hell. How does hell work for you? That's a different response. So the first thing we have to do is, is examine our relationship to religion. And I appreciate, for example, the um, uh, 
the growing body of atheist literature. I want atheists to come out of the closet and, and stand up in America. But it, it can't, it, to the extent that it's angry, and there are many reasons to be angry at religion, but to the extent that it's angry and it, it, it indicates an issue that hasn't been dealt with in those people who are writing. So that's the first thing. The second thing is I have to begin to be very clear about my health, that this is not about changing the addict or making the addict somehow give up things. I've got to be very clear. This is about taking care of my space. So I have to begin to define my space. If you want to be around me, this is how you have to act. You cannot act that way around me. And and that's about taking care of myself and setting my space up. Another thing I have to do, and I'm just giving you a, a quick look at a couple of things in here, is I've got to begin to just realize that when someone is addicted to religion, I recognize this, and you, there are people who are, who are interested in religious discussions. They're interested, they will talk, they will listen, they're open for change. But when I get to someone who's, who's, who's absolutely closed like that, well, would you like to read a book on the topic? No, is that book by some liberal? Now I know I've got someone who has, a, who has that barrier up. Then the next thing I have to do is I do not want to get into an argument with them. If I get into an argument with them over the Bible, over God, and so on, like I said, now I'm arguing on their territory. Because what causes them to be addicted to religion, as in most addictions, is some personal issue. If they, can't, if they get down to that personal issue, that's what's going to be the most important thing for their healing. But if I sit there arguing over whether Christianity is better than Buddhism or whether this is that or what, what the Bible says about this and so on, when they're addicted, then I'm not, we're not getting down to their issue. We're getting, down to a, we're getting into an argument, as I said, that's like whether rum or tequila is better for you if you're, if you're an alcoholic. So it's uh, uh, an, an example. Uh, let me see. Um, I'm trying to think of an example particularly of that. But, again, it's, it's being very clear and being very clear that what I take is I take responsibility for every position I take. I don't blame God. I don't blame the universe. I don't blame tradition. I don't blame the Bible. I take responsibility for it. And and no, no, I say no, no to them. That's what, but someone comes up to me after my talk and say, well, what about this verse of the Bible? I'll often say, well, I know a lot of people interpret it that way. I don't. Well, what about this? Well, I know a lot of people see it that way. I don't. Well, what don't you think about this? Well, I think that's wrong. I know a lot of people disagree with me, but I don't. And so it's, it's, it's about, again, taking personal responsibility for my, for my space. And it means that I have to sort of come out as a non-addicted person. I cannot sit there and, and be an enabler or, or sort of allow them to assume that I'm agreeing with them on, on their issues. And you can do oh. that always be nice. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think uh, that's a great place to uh, bring us to a close. Personal responsibility is a great thing, and that's the a way for people who are not addicted to deal with things as a people way for people who are addicted to deal with their addictions. You take responsibility for them and then you find ways to move on and overcome them. Thank you very much for being our guest tonight, Bob. You're welcome, Ken. Thank you again for having me. Okay, I'm gonna do a little quick plug for the website and the book. The website is hamsnetwork.org, free of charge support group for anyone that wants to make positive change in their drinking habits from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. And the book is How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. I'm going to bring our second guest on right now. This is Mark Tuchel, who's the author of Living Sober Sucks, But Living Drunk Sucks More. Mark, can you hear me? Absolutely, Ken. Can you hear me? I can hear you. It's great to have you on the show tonight. Oh, thank you very much, and what a fabulous guest uh, before me. What a very uh, wonderful, interesting gentleman, and and just listening to him speak about personal responsibility and, and, and all. Very, very delightful that he was on prior to me. Uh, I'm working my way through your book. I'm about halfway through. It's really interesting. I'm also a... Oh, and, and you haven't burnt it yet? Thank you. It's very nice of you. I haven't burned it yet. No, it's it's too warm in New York City to be burning books. Uh, it's summertime. Um, I'm a Wisconsin boy too. I'm from uh, up uh, by Lake Pepin. Do you know Lake Pepin? Um, uh, well, you name dropper, you. That's, that's amazing. <laughs> no, but Wisconsin's a beautiful area here. 
Oh, it is. It is. And uh, I went to school for about two years in Eau Claire, um, so we probably drank in many of the same bars there. I don't know if Absolutely. We were so, so you are familiar with the drinking uh, culture here in the state of Wisconsin. Oh, absolutely. I believe for the last 20 years, it's had the number one alcohol consumption uh, per capita of the U.S. It's, uh, yep. Yes, my Yeah, and, and, and that's, you know, some of the things that uh, I, I refer to, and I'm a firm believer that um, alcoholism is a choice, that it is not a disease, and it, it can be brought on by a variety, variety of things, be it your uh, geographical location, such as being in Wisconsin, where it's, it's such a welcomed uh, activity, and it can be uh, psychological causes. Uh, I mean, I agree that people do become uh, physically uh, dependent upon alcohol, and they have you know, uh, the same thing, uh, a psychological addiction to alcohol, but it is still their choice whether they're going to introduce alcohol into their system or not. Absolutely. And I'm going to throw a couple of facts and figures around here before I get into your book in detail. Uh, the latest studies by the NIAAA, they're published in uh, the uh, NIAAA Spectrum. You can look them up online. It's an article called Alcohol isn't what it, Alcoholism Isn't What It Used to Be. And they said that 56% of all people who are alcohol dependent will quit, will recover on their own. And only 19% go to AA or rehab. There's another 25% that actually don't recover. Some of them do get better, but they're still alcohol dependent. But actually, the most common outcome for 56% of people with alcohol dependence is to do what you did. Uh, we had another guest, Amy Lee Carr, that also wrote a book about self-recovery. And this is the most common outcome is people. It's not easy. It's a lot of hard work, but people can overcome it on their own. And not everybody needs uh, rehab or AA. So that's, I want to bring us into your book with that and tell me about how you stopped, why you stopped, and uh, let's start with why, why, did you, why did you decide to stop? Well, uh, the, the key driving factor behind why I stopped was I had the goal of salvaging uh, a, a marriage. I was married for 23 years. And I could see that this was becoming a problem. We went to a marriage counselor, and the marriage counselor came right out and said, you two don't have a marital problem. You two have an alcohol problem. And I, I wanted to salvage my marriage. I, I loved my wife. And I realized that I need to get this under control. Well, so that that's kind of the whole point of the book then and, and a lot of my philosophies is the things that you desire and that you hope for and wish for may not come to fruition. Uh, my marriage did ultimately end in divorce, uh, but I did not go back to drinking. I have been sober almost six years now. Uh, so I did not get out of sobriety what I had hoped for, and that's one of the the key messages I want to get a, that I like to get across to people is that look, this is going to be different. You may not get everything that you're hoping for, and and that's that's why I decided to do this on my own. I did attend uh, close to 100. Uh, meetings, uh, going to AA because I had no, I had no alternative. I had, I had no idea what else might be out there. So I would go to these meetings, and I fell under a belief that, well, if you follow the steps, the steps will work, and you will regain all the things you have lost. And 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 not that I'm bashing AA whatsoever, but other people will influence you and tell you these things. And I was under that belief. And then all of a sudden, when things are not coming together and, and my life isn't happening how I had hoped it would, I was like, wait a minute, this, this isn't right. I thought this was all supposed to work out wonderful and, and fuzzy bunnies would be hopping around me and this is going to be great. But it didn't turn out that way. But I'm, I'm still pleased with myself and proud of myself for no longer drinking. 
Well, that's true that not everything becomes perfect when you stop drinking, but do you find that there are good things, advantages to not drinking that you'll like a lot? Oh, absolutely. The uh, uh, the, the first thing, uh, Ken, the first thing that I will mention is my ability to engage in in wonderful, deep conversations with people instead of just saying, oh, you're an idiot, you don't know anything. I mean, we, we can actually hold a conversation and, and discuss things and, and take turns listening to one another. And, and and just physically, I feel so much better. And I, I don't want to sound um, like a money-grubbing person, but I save an enormous amount of money, and I make sure I reward myself with my booze savings. I set up a specific savings account separate from everything else because, you know, just like somebody who quits smoking or whatever, uh, they say, oh, boy, I'm going to save all this money. Well, money is migratory, and it goes away. It goes somewhere. So I specifically put $10 a day into my booze savings account, and I use that for birthday gifts, Christmas gifts, to reward myself. I just returned from a national book tour and touring the country. I would tell people, I'm driving around in my bottle of scotch. After five years of saving $10 a day, what does that come to? You don't need to be Pythagoras to figure this out, but that's a little bit over $18,000. I mean, that, that's the one thing I noticed most alcoholics don't want to admit is how much they actually spend on this little hobby of theirs. Oh, it can be a very costly hobby indeed. This, uh, there's a thing that says on the back of your book. It says, the secret to sobriety is don't drink. The answer is simple. The application is the tough part. Now, tell us about some of the things that you did when you stopped drinking and how you, how you managed to keep from drinking. What are some things you did? Well, uh, it's, you know, I talk about how your friends and your peers, you know, we're adults and we think, well, peer pressure is only for teenagers. Oh, no, no, no. Uh, peer pressure is for adults as well. And I realized, I came to the harsh reality that I'm going to have to change some of my friends. Uh, so I took it upon myself to not associate and hang out socially with those who were at one point my drinking friends. So that was the key thing I did. And and as I like to tell other people, you know, this is this is an evolutionary process. So initially, I put myself into a self-imposed lockdown. I didn't go out. I stayed at home. I needed to clear my body of the uh, the chemical of alcohol, and I needed to then clear my mind. So I basically worked a lot of hours, and I stayed at home. Now. Uh, was I punishing myself? Can in no way was I punishing myself, but I realized I had to get this under control, and that's what I needed to do. And my life seemed overwhelming, and I tried to do simple things, just clean my house, make sure that I took care of just daily responsibilities. No, that's not exciting. I know a lot of people always ask me about, well, well, I, I, I want something more exciting than, than <laughs> keeping my house clean. Well, I'm sorry. Keeping your house clean may not be that exciting, but you can get a sense of control over your life then. And that was some of the key things I did. I, I purposefully stayed at home. I began reading. I needed to educate myself. I wanted to know uh, about what happens to the body. What 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 does alcohol do to a body? Why do I feel these weird ways? I wanted to understand this. Uh, when I went to the various meetings, those questions were never answered, and I was never allowed to ask those questions. I was always just told follow the steps. You know, and so I bounced around quite a bit. I, I would do that. I would work on steps. I, would, I, I was going through a discovery process. But the key thing is that I realized I needed to put myself into a self-imposed lockdown and not go out in, into, the, uh, into temptation's way. 
What, what you're talking about is uh, something that uh, Marshall Linehan, who's the developer of dialectical behavioral therapy, has also been talking about, and it's really good. It's distraction. When, and this is the way uh, you know we talk about applying it. When you want to drink, find a way to distract yourself. And you clean your house. I mean, that's one thing we wrote on our website. You know, you can sweep the floor. You know, go concentrate totally on sweeping the floor. Or you can work. You can go be a volunteer somewhere if you're not employed getting paid for it. But anything you do that can distract yourself is a good way, you know, to avoid the cravings, the urges, you know. Oh, absolutely, and and I, I'm glad you brought that up about distraction because I, I tell people they need to develop their own what I call a secret support group, and that doesn't mean that it's exclusive and no one else is allowed in or they have to only be alcoholics to be allowed in. No, I would, uh, such as if you were my friend, if I had a difficult day, I would call you up. I would call up Ken. And secretly, I would say, so Ken, tell me about your day. Tell me what you got going on in your life. I want to hear about you. Did you go see any good movies? What do you think of the Yankees? Um, you know, what do you think of this political outcome? I would distract my own mind. I wasn't hiding from things, but I didn't need to call you and say, oh, Ken, my life is miserable. I'm having a rough time. Sooner or later, you're going to see my phone number on your screen, and you're going to go, I don't want to talk to this idiot anymore. I'm sick of listening to him whine and complain. So uh, as a distraction, I would call Ken and say, dude, tell me about your life. I want to know about you. And, and, and if you would say, so by the way, Mark, how's, this, uh, how's your alcohol thing going? You know, I'm not busting your nuts on this, but, you know, you, 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 you're still sober. Yeah, I'd say, you know, Ken, yeah, I've had some struggles here, but that's why I'm talking to a good friend like you, because you distract me and you make me feel better. I'm, I'm not making up, you know, fuzzy, fake stuff here. It's, it's mm-hmm. just called normal life. Mm-hmm. Well, we found that, I mean, a lot of people found the worst thing that, the worst thing to do is sit at home alone and tell yourself, I want to drink, I'm not going to drink. I want to drink, I'm not going to drink. And pretty soon, you know, the person will go out and drink. And, you know, much better than that is to go out, do something, call somebody, sweep your floor, clean your house, whatever you can do, you know. Uh, distraction is one. Another one that uh, they talked about is self-soothing. I haven't gotten all the way through your book yet, but um, some people will do something else to make them feel good. See a movie, eat ice cream, go out for dinner. Oh, yes, yes. And actually that's... Uh that that's chapter 13 uh, which is what i call you know developing your own reward system i mean m- money is the universally accepted reward system here well so is sex but uh, in life um if, if you can reward yourself with money like you just said okay i didn't spend 10 or 15 or 20 dollars going out to a bar tonight um, I'm going to spend $5 and go get myself a nice Frappuccino at uh, Starbucks or or some sinful type of uh, luxury that you would like to have in life. And I, and I tell people, don't spend every penny that you have saved or that you're no longer spending on booze, but, but spend some of it and save some of it so you see concrete rewards. I mean, that's, that's what drinking is all about. I want to be gratified and rewarded immediately within the first 15 minutes of pounding down that booze i'm getting my gratif- my self-gratification whereas if you're saving money and you're rewarding yourself slowly that it delayed gratification and and sometimes the anticipation of gratification is is even a bit more exciting or arousing. Hey, just consider going out on a date. You know, okay, I'm going to hang out with you for a couple hours, and you're imagining and thinking far in advance. So you you can uh, your mind is very powerful, and <laughs> and you can really you can enjoy your own mind. Oh, absolutely. Um, now you've got a chapter here called "Where Is Your Bottom?" and tell me a little bit about finding your bottom. 
Well, you know, it's interesting because I had, I had encountered numerous bottoms all along the way, which is, you know, from from my dealing with, with so many other drunks out in the world, and I, and I like to call ourselves drunks because, you know, why, why do we have to polish a turd here? Let's just say what we are, we're drunk. <laughs> Okay, um, you know we 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 encounter various bottoms. I mean, I smashed I smashed up cars. I've been to fights. I've done all sorts of crazy things. That's not that's not a fire truck by me. I don't believe. That's just uh, the lullaby of New York here. Okay, that's uh, wonderful. No, but I I had encountered you know I. I had smashed up my car. I ended up in a hospital, uh, you know, having my face sewn back together. One would imagine, oh, okay, that's your bottom. No, it took me 13 more years of drinking like an idiot until I actually hit my bottom. And and it was not one unique or one individual event. It was a series and a sequence of things that I that I could visualize and I uh, I have a very visual mind and, and I could see all of these things unfolding in front of me and, and I could see that uh my marriage was collapsing and, and and I could see that I had I I had lost control of myself and I'm a very proud man and suddenly I realized I had no control of myself. I was not having control of my life. It, it actually it got me nauseous. I, I, I was about to vomit. I, I, I was sitting there in my living room just staring at the wall. And I said, this is it. This is really it. I, I, I can't have this. Uh, people don't uh, People don't have confidence in me, and I don't have confidence in myself. I can't have this. And and that was really that was my bottom. I I said, wow, I got to do something here. And I and I did, haven't drank again. Now you talked about you started cutting back before you quit completely. Tell me about that. Well, and, and I knew in advance that this was this was the problem. So I I decided instead of drinking my favorite brand of beer and my favorite brand of scotch, because I would typically drink beer uh, first and drink that during the day, and then I would drink uh, anywhere from a half to a full bottle of scotch in the evening until I passed out, I started drinking brands that I didn't care for, kind of weaning myself away from it. I didn't really, I didn't know about the the physical uh, ill effects that were going to take place once I took alcohol away from my body and from my my organs because they get accustomed to functioning with alcohol in them. But uh, so I started weaning myself down. I knew the day was going to come that I'm going to have to quit. So I'm going to start uh, drinking a brand that I'm not that doesn't palate well with me, and I'm going to drink less of it. And eventually, that was it. That was that was the end. I I believe that that did help my body get used to living without alcohol. But oh no, but when your body's used to it, it will revolt. Okay. <laughs> Man, it's gonna revolt when you when you take it away. Your body's gonna say, "Wait a minute, what? You've been feeding me this for all these years, and now you're not gonna give it to me? Oh no, oh no! I got a little present for you." Yeah, people who do stop abruptly are cold turkey can sometimes have some very dangerous withdrawal symptoms, seizures and DTs and uh, death. So. Oh, oh, absolutely, and and that's probably one of the reasons people relapse um, within uh, virtually seventy-two hours because they're feeling there's there's so many different feelings that are taking place. First, they have the the sensation of wow, I feel wonderful, I'm mental, okay, I got this under control now. But then their body also is craving it their body wants it i mean your your brain as an organ becomes accustomed to having this substance coursing through your your bloodstream and you take it away this is a whole different dietary balance that's taking place now and it's going to freak out a little bit that's very true so it is it's 
some people need to taper down, uh, which is actually what you did, and some people might find it helpful to go into medical detox or to get uh, some medications to help them through the withdrawal. Um, if someone's, if you're out there and you stop alcohol abruptly and you start shaking like a leaf and sweating and your heart starts pounding uh, 100 beats a minute, then uh, be careful. You either need to drink again to, so you don't die or and taper off the alcohol slowly or you will need a medical detox with medications. So be careful that you don't... Uh, don't kill yourself and quit. Oh, absolutely. And, and, and Ken, it's interesting that you brought that up to say, well, you know, take, uh, have a little bit to take the edge off. Um, if it's not within a controlled environment or the person is incapable of controlling this themselves, uh, that, again, that's what you, you put, okay, I'm going to pound a beer down real quick to get rid of the shakes. Well, what is it? It's it's a mind-altering substance, and it's going to do what it's supposed to do. It alters your mind. Okay, well, that one made me feel better. Well, uh, maybe three or four or five or eight more is going to make me feel even more better. And 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 one goes back into it. So you are correct. Sometimes under a controlled environment, they need just to have a little bit so that their body physiologically can wean itself off of it. Okay, um, you have another uh, chapter called The Wake-Up Calls I Slept Through. Can you tell me about that chapter? Yeah, well, and that, that was what I was talking about, the, you know, getting in a, uh, I, I decided to take a nap while I was driving one evening at 3 in the morning, and I just slammed into a concrete wall and basically woke up in a hospital. Uh, you know, and various other things, everything from, you know, smashing, you know, I live on a lake, or I smash my boat into something, or, um, you know, there's there's domestic arguments or, or daily arguments with my spouse or arguing with neighbors and, and just various other conditions and things that would happen that this should have been a wake-up call. People say, well, I know. You know, I hit my bottom. I hit bottom so many times, but just said, "Well, uh, that wasn't that bad. I'll, 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 I'll fix all this." And then I would just continue to drink. So <clears throat> those were just the numerous new call after call that I just the wake up calls that I just slept through. I just kept on doing it and. And kept on going, and, and I thought I was, you know, I was Superman. Nah, that's fine. I'll, I, I can fix this. This, this all work out. I'll get it taken care of. But my, my brain was all addled from alcohol, and I, I couldn't think straight. I was delusional, thinking that I could handle things. Well, no, not really. <laughs> I, I could not. Okay, you have a chapter called "Is AA for You." Now, um, some people like AA, it fits them well, and, you know, I think we wish them well. If that's working for you, go for it. We're not trying to keep people, we're not trying to get people out of AA if it's helping them. But lots of us have bad reactions to it. I had a bad reaction to it. I drank more when I went to AA. But they told me alcohol was powerless. Alcohol was powerful. I was powerless. And it kind of, well, stop. Where's that? Where's that? Where's that going to go? But what, what was your reaction to AA? And, uh, how did you feel about the, the different steps? Well, just just like you, uh, Ken, I was in the same situation. When I walked out of a meeting, I felt I felt deflated. I felt less like a human being. I felt less like a man, and I felt more like drinking. I was told I'm despicable. I was. I had to remind myself that I'm despicable and that I'm powerless. I mean, when I would sit in these meetings and I would say, hi, my name is Mark, and that's it, they'd kind of be looking at me like, and? I'm like, no, my name is Mark, and I'm here. And they're like, no, 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 you're an alcoholic and you're powerless. I'm like, no, I am not powerless. I don't pour it into me. If I pour it into me, then I am powerless. But I have power over alcohol. Oh, that wasn't... The uh, no, they didn't like that. <laughs> they didn't like that at all. <laughs> but I, I did, you know, with 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 the best of intention. I felt, you know what? I'm going to read all of the books. I'm going to 
really analyze the steps. I'm taking this seriously, and that's what I tell anyone that is is serious about uh, getting control over their destructive drinking. You know, why not investigate these things? Go experience it yourself. Maybe you will find, as you said, maybe you'll find that it's it's great fellowship and and that that this works out for you. I believe another part of attending AA meetings is eventually, it's just like school, eventually you should graduate and you should go out into the real world. If you want to live a fully engaged, fun life, you need to be able to graduate and go out into the real world. To sit there and listen to some guy that said, I've been coming here for 27 years and I'm still the same miserable piece of crap I always was. I thought, is this me? I don't want this. <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to be like this. This is, this is your whole social environment. And, and I have also, and I'm sure you've witnessed it, uh, it could be almost like any other group you become, that's your new addiction. And I've seen other people who now will forego visiting or staying home with their children or their whatever it might be. They have relatives coming into town. No, sorry, I, got, I have to be at a meeting. It's like, well, well what, what's the difference between you sitting in a gin mill or you sitting at this meeting? You're still away from your children. You're still away from your spouse. You're still away from people that are visiting. Well, tell me the difference here. Well, I'm not drunk. Yeah, but you're you're still absent. You're not part of life any longer. So it, uh, you know, I, w- I would never tell people not to do it, but you know, it's an evolution. Eventually, you should graduate. Mm-hmm. Well, people always have to make up their own mind what is right for them. So you know, everybody should try different things, and but you know, always choose for yourself what's right for you. And, and you know, when you start looking at, at the steps, I, I'm a believer that why can't someone say, you know, I buy into step number one, number five, number seven, and, uh, and number, uh, number ten, and that's it. And those are the ones I'm going to exercise. Uh, to have other people tell me, oh, no, you've got to follow all of them or you will fail, that is not fellowship. That's a threat. That's that, that that's not how you treat one another. Yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting. If you look at the, the 12 by 12, uh, Bill Wilson's other book, uh, he says, the steps are only suggestions, but anyone who fails to follow the steps signs their own death warrant. So kind of a contradiction there. <clears throat> uh, yes, yes. And... Um, I've also, you know, and this is just my own personal belief, and, and, and it was very interesting, like I said, your, your guest prior to me about the religious addiction. I have always said there is no higher power over me than me. And people say, oh, my God, you're being omnipotent. You're, you're, you're just so full of yourself. I'm like, no, no, no. I control me. I'm not going to relinquish my power to any invisible bearded man in the sky. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's just not going to happen. Uh, I, mean, I have to control and be responsible for myself and my own behaviors. Plain and simple. That's, that's, it's an ugly reality, and that's it. <laughs> that, that's how I have looked at it. So I, uh, to To suddenly have to say that there is... A religious deity, or 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 even if it's an invisible higher power, I know you can have the secular groups that say, "Well, it, it, it could be any higher power." Um, well, that's me. I am my own higher power. I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, I had a hard time when they said uh, that rock over there—that's your god. <clears throat> the rock is not God, or they said uh, the AA group is God. AA the AA group didn't create the heavens and the earth. So, you know, I couldn't really go along with that. So, well, we're, we're coming down to the end of time. I will okay. make time for the show, not for the world. Um, but uh, Oh, good, good. Oh, great. <laughs> I want to thank you very much for being our guest tonight, Mark. Yes, thank you, Ken, very much. Okay, and next week, our guest will be Andrew Newberg, who wrote a book called How God Changes Your Brain. 
It's about, he's measured the changes in your brain when you meditate. He's done brain scans on people that do meditation and prayer and things. It's really interesting. And Adam Zimbardo, who does uh, marriage counseling and sex therapy with alternatives, sexualities, gay, lesbian, bisexual. So it should be a very interesting show. Thank you, everyone, and see you next week.